Luke chapter 21. We're going to be starting in Luke 21 in verse 20. Actually, I'm going to start reading in verse 5 just to give you context for this passage. Starting in verse 5. Look there with me. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word, as we consider what Jesus said to his disciples, as we consider what Luke chose to record for Theophilus and what your Holy Spirit has superintended Luke to record for Theophilus for the sake of your church, even us. We pray that your Spirit would give us understanding, that you would turn the lights on in our dark minds, that we would see your word, that we would rejoice in your word, that we would repent before your word, that we would know you better, that you would be honored and exalted in our lives. We pray, Father, as we look at this very difficult teaching of Jesus 
with regard to his intent to judge the ethnic people of Israel. I pray, Father, that you would sober us, our own hearts, that we would trust that you are God and we are not, that your word is true and that our thoughts often are not, and that you would be exalted among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're a culture that desires heaven without hell. We pretty universally believe that everyone is going to a better place when they die. We always assume that when someone who is suffering dies, that this person has finally found relief, regardless of whether that person is an unbeliever or not. But if they're not a believer in Jesus, I want to be clear, if they are not a believer in Jesus, then they have not entered their rest, and their pain and suffering has not decreased. It's grown worse. But we hate the idea of judgment. We hate that. We despise the idea that God is a holy judge. Who is he to command me not to do certain things? Let alone, who is he to condemn me for not obeying him? See, he can save me, but he can't be my king. Right? He can rescue me and redeem me, but he can never tell me what to do. He can forgive me, but he can't commend me to, command me to repent. He can reward me, but he can never judge me. Yet the Bible is clear that God can and will judge you. He can do so because he is a sovereign God, and he will do so because he is a holy and just God. But since we struggle with seeing God this way, and certainly with talking about his judgment, passages like the one we're looking at today are difficult for us. Let's face it, whenever we start to talk about God's judgment for sin, the need to repent, hell, our mouths start to get stopped up. In this text, Jesus explains that judgment, the judgment that he is bringing to Israel for her rejection of him. And to understand the context in that, we need to begin by looking at verse 5, because this teaching will somewhat stun us in our culture. But I want to give you context for that by starting with verse 5. Look there. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, now look at verse 6, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. If you've been here in my previous sermons as I've walked through this passage, You know that the disciples are on the Mount of Olives gazing at the temple and they're gazing at it as the center of their worship. Their understanding of the entire cosmos is built around that. Their whole worldview is found in the temple. Their whole understanding of God's covenant with them, of being God with them and them being his people is grounded in that. Their whole understanding of God's 
special favor and grace abiding on them is found in that temple, and they're looking at that temple and adoring its noble stones and offerings. And as they're doing that, Jesus makes this incredibly shocking statement to them. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's a stunner for them. You're going to destroy the temple? This whole thing's going to be torn down? They understand immediately that that has to do with God's judgment with regard to them. In fact, Matthew makes that very clear to us in the way that he records the story, which is a bit different for, from Luke because of different agendas they have in recording the story. But Matthew actually tells us, goes on and tells us, the disciples follow up with questions. Well, when will these things be? And when will the end of all things be? And when will be your coming? In other words, they hear about the destruction of the temple and they immediately think, that's the end of all things and that's when you're returning. And so the disciples ask in verse 7, what are going to be the signs that this day will have arrived? Look there. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when the, these things are about to take place? What are the signs? So we know this day's arrived. Now what's interesting is in verse 8 through 18, Jesus goes down and talks about all these things the disciples will experience. You'll experience earthquakes, and you'll experience nations warring against nations, and you'll experience personal persecution, being dragged before synagogues and councils, and you're going to experience all of that stuff, but none of those things are the sign. In fact, people will come during those things, false teachers will come to you and say, these things are the sign. He's coming, and he says, don't follow after them. Now in verse 20, he turns to where he says, now here's the sign. Look there. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. See, here's the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. That these things, the destruction of the temple, are about to take place. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So today, as we look at this sign that Jesus finally gives them, as we look at that, I want you to see four aspects of Jesus' teaching about the judgment of Jerusalem. So I'm going to go over four aspects about Jesus' teaching of the judgment of Jerusalem. And then what I'm going to ask is, I want to ask the question and answer the question, how does this apply to us? And you're going to see why I'm going to ask that question in a minute. So let's start with the first, sign, or the first aspect of Jesus' judgment of Jerusalem. The first aspect is the sign of the judgment of Jerusalem. What is the sign of the judgment of Jerusalem? Look at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Here's your sign that the temple's about to be destroyed. Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. When you see that, know its desolation has come near. Now, Matthew picks up this same idea. He uses the word desolation as well, but he explains it a little bit more fully in a Jewish context. Look at Matthew 24 and verse 15, if you'll turn there to Matthew 24 and verse 15. Matthew 24 and verse 15. So when you see, 
So here's your sign. You're going to see something. When you see the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. What's interesting is I don't have time to walk through all of Daniel, but there's a reference here to Daniel 9, and there's some references here to Daniel 11, and I wish I could walk through all that with you this morning, but I did a series on Daniel last summer, so you can go and look into that more. But here's the point. There's this prophecy that Daniel gives several hundred years before it's fulfilled the first time about this abomination that causes desolation. The first time it really, or the Jews understand its fulfillment, is recorded in what's called an apocryphal text. These are intertestamental books between the Old and New Testament that we don't include as part of the canon, but they do give us some history of what happened in that intertestamental period between about four to 500 B.C. and the coming of Christ or the beginning of the New Testament. They give us some history over that period and how the Jews saw what was happening during that period. And in 1 Maccabees, we're told that this that the Jews believed that this whole thing in Daniel about the abomination that causes desolation coming into the temple, that that whole thing was fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes IV. That's what they believed at the time. Who is that? Well, during the reign of the Greek Empire in approximately the 160s to 170 B.C. time period, and I should probably do that backwards, right? 170 to 160 B.C. So it was winding down. In that time period, Antiochus Epiphanes IV had overthrown Jerusalem. And he ruled there for just over three years. And he set up an altar to Zeus in the temple, and he offered the sacrifice of pigs there. In the temple. Which for the Jews was the abomination that causes desolation. To be sacrificing swine to a false god in the temple was as bad as it got in their minds. And Antiochus said Epiphanes had chased them out and ruled them quite brutally until there was the Maccabean revolt led by some priests, some Jewish priests, who led a revolt. And the Jews eventually, to shorten the history, you can read it in First, Second Maccabees if you want to spend time reading that history, but the Jews eventually ran him out. They ran him out of the city on the 25th of Chislev, which is approximately December 25th. They ran him out, and on that day, they tore down the altar to Zeus. They built an altar to God, and they began offering sacrifices to Yahweh once again. And they celebrate that time with a festival every year that we know of as Hanukkah. And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to understand, reader, what Daniel was talking about. He knows that they all believe that was fulfilled with Antiochus Epiphanes IV. But what he's saying is, no, no, there's there's an even greater fulfillment of that. There's not just one prophetic fulfillment of that. There's an even greater one. Let You need to understand, there's an even greater one, and it's going to happen when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem. In AD 70, the Roman general Titus surrounded Jerusalem and destroyed it. This is at least one fulfillment of what Jesus is saying here in Luke 21. Minimally. 
There are some scholars who believe that this actually has a dual fulfillment as well, that there will be a future fulfillment. I don't hold to that view, that there will be a temple rebuilt and this will happen once again. That is not a view that I hold to. But most scholars agree that they're at least talking about AD 70 and potentially a second fulfillment as well. So why, here's the question, if this judgment is coming on the Jews in AD 70, why do the Jews deserve this judgment? Why? Look at verse 22. We'll look at the reason for the judgment of Jerusalem. We see the sign. Let's see the reason. We're going to skip verse 21 and come back to it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So what does Jesus mean, days of vengeance to fulfill all that's written? Where does the Old Testament, see, when you see that, to fulfill all that's written, Jesus is obviously referring to the Old Testament. So where does the Old Testament promise these days of vengeance? Well, to understand that, you have to understand a comprehensive understanding of the old covenant that God made with Moses and therefore the people of Israel in him. In this Mosaic covenant, God promises both blessings and curses. Blessings if they keep the covenant, curses if they violate the covenant. And we read about those curses in Deuteronomy 28. I'll just give you a quick reading in Deuteronomy 28 in verse 15 of those curses that, comes upon, that come upon them if they violate the covenant. Deuteronomy 28, and it, all, it goes all the way through the rest of the chapter, which is multiple verses, but in verse 15 it says this, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field, Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. In other words, the Lord promises them in the Mosaic Covenant that if you do not keep the covenant, if you violate this covenant, curses will come upon you. And the first time we see those curses come upon them in the most clear way is the exile that happens when they're exiled, which is the book of Daniel fits right in that 70-year period of exile as Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire came in and conquered them and kicked them out of the land, and they were out for approximately 70 years, and then they were brought back into the land by permission from the Medo-Persian Empire. And they came back in and began to rebuild the temple in the city. The temple which was not completed until just before it was destroyed in AD 70. But there's curses were promised, and we see them fulfilled. Now look at Jeremiah chapter 18, if you will. Turn there, because you will see these kind of curses promised to them as well, which Jeremiah 18 is talking about the exile that's coming when they're kicked out by the Babylonian Empire. However, with that said, this same language is picked up by Jesus and the apostles with regard to the curses that Israel faces in this passage Jeremiah 18 and verse 5, then the word of the Lord came to me, to Jeremiah, O house of Israel, 
can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Now this passage in Jeremiah is a promise about what's coming to the Jews, the curse that's coming to them in the exile. But the principle of what happens in Deuteronomy 28 or what's promised in Deuteronomy 28 and what's promised here in the exile remains true. If you Jews continue to violate my covenant, then I will destroy you. I will curse you. I will judge you. That's picked up again in Hosea 9, 10, and 11, that theme. It's picked up in Zechariah. It's picked up multiple places in the Minor Prophets. I want to look at one specifically, which is the last, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Look there. Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. This is just before Matthew. If you're like me, like I was in my early 20s when I didn't know Matthew from Malachi, it's just these, this is where you split the Old Testament, New Testament are right here. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Matthew's the first of the New Testament. But Malachi chapter 3, behold, I send my messenger. This is speaking of John the Baptist prophetically. And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now here's Jesus coming to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now notice this interesting verse which comes next, because John the Baptist is going to come, and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord, and then the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, the one who is himself the covenant according to Isaiah 42, he is going to come. But when he comes, what's he going to do? Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then, look at verse 5, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, John the Baptist understood this passage, and when he preached, he preached about the one who would come after him, whose sandals he was not worthy to untie, who would baptize you with both the Spirit and with fire. He is both going to save and judge. And John the Baptist, at some point in his life while in prison, begins to be confused about the fact that as Jesus is going around preaching, Jesus is healing diseases and caring for people and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, and proclaiming great grace and mercy and compassion for the people, 
And John the Baptist is saying, are you the one? I thought you were going to come and judge people. I knew you were going to save. I also thought you were going to judge. Where's that? And Jesus comes back and says, listen, this is the year of, or the time of salvation. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is what I'm doing right now. But Jesus is coming to judge. And the first manifestation, manifestation of that judgment is talked about multiple times in Luke. And it's coming against Israel, ethnic Jews specifically, initially, for their violation of the Mosaic Covenant. And for their violation, for their failure to understand that the new covenant in Christ has come. Look at Luke chapter 11. Look at Luke chapter 11. I want to walk through this briefly as we come back to Luke 21. Luke chapter 11 and verse 49. Therefore also, the wisdom of God said, now listen, listen to what the wisdom of God said. Jesus is telling us the wisdom of God said. I will send them, here's the Lord speaking, I will send them prophets. That's, this is talking about ethnic Israel. I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Hear that? Judgment is going to come upon this generation for the rejection of God's prophets in the Old Testament, for the rejection of God's apostles, for the rejection of God's Christ. Look at chapter 19 of Luke and verse 41. Chapter 19 and verse 41 And when he drew near and saw the city, that's the city of Jerusalem, as he's coming in the last week of his life, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. The day will come when these armies will surround you and tear you to the ground, verse 44, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's he talking about there? The entire Old Testament, all of the covenants, all of the promises, all of the prophecies were pointing forward to me and the time of your visitation when I would come to save you and you didn't know that day. Instead, you rejected those promises, you rejected those prophets and killed them. And you're going to reject and kill me. And your judgment will come swiftly against you. Jesus doesn't say that with delight. He says that with tears in his eyes as he weeps over the city. Now look at chapter 20 
verse 9, Jesus begins to tell them a parable. And he began to tell the people this parable. Now you want to hear this. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. This is talking about the Lord sending prophets to Israel. Then the owner of the vineyard, that's the Lord, said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You hear what Jesus is telling them? You've rejected God's prophecies, God's prophets, God's promises. You've rejected God's Messiah. And you will be judged for it. Not one stone of that temple will be left upon another. It will all be torn down. Your city will be hemmed in around every side by your enemies, and they will destroy you. Jesus gives these warnings. I want you to hear this context in Luke 21. He gives these warnings in Luke 21 to his disciples so that they will respond appropriately when they see this judgment coming. I want you to know the sign. When you see these armies surrounding Jerusalem, flee. Flee. Get out. For judgment is coming. A few days before Jesus' own crucifixion, he is concerned about the well-being of his disciples. What love he has for them. So what is to be their response? How should they react to all this? Look at Luke chapter 21 and verse 21, and we'll look at verse 23 through 24. So let's look at verse 21 first. The response to the judgment of Jerusalem. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. See, flee to the mountains, get out. And if you're already outside the city, don't come back. Now look at verse 23. Alas for women who are pregnant at and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. That's speaking of Israel. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So you flee because it's going to be ugly. Get out of the city when you see those armies surrounding it because it's going to be bad. We're told by Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, not a Christian, 
as he wrote in the book, The Jewish Wars, he wrote that book in about AD 75. And if you want to read a fascinating piece of history, go read Josephus's Jewish Wars, written in about AD 75. He talks about the siege on Jerusalem that happens in AD 70 as General Titus, who later becomes one of the Caesars, but at this point is the son of a Caesar, as General Titus surrounds Jerusalem. And Josephus tells us that as he surrounds Jerusalem, he comes in with his soldiers to destroy her, that over one million Jews were slaughtered in that siege. Over a hundred thousand were enslaved. That the soldiers starved out the people to such a degree that women were seen on their housetops roasting their own children to eat them. The soldiers set fire to the city and destroyed the temple and the flames burned all around. But Josephus said the blood ran so heavy down the street that the blood running down the streets put out the fires. It was an awful, gruesome judgment. They tore down every stone from the temple, completely decimated. And Jesus was warning the Christians that when this comes, when you see this judgment coming, you need to flee immediately. Get out. What's interesting is the fourth century historian Eusebius, if you've not read him, I would encourage you to read him as well. Eusebius, 4th century Christian historian, records that Christians gave heed to Jesus' warning. Here's what he says. I want you to hear what he says. The people of the Christian church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city to depart and dwell in one of the cities of Perea, which they called Pella. To it, those who believed on Christ migrated from Jerusalem that when holy men had altogether deserted the royal capital of the Jews and the whole land of Judea, the judgment of God might at last overtake them for all their crimes against the Christ and his apostles and all that generation of the wicked be utterly blotted out from among men. What historians record is that the Christians saw the surrounding armies of Titus and at one point the armies pulled back for a minute and when they did, the Christians fled the city in mass. And historians recount to this day, there are some arguments about this, but they say that as far as they can find, no Christians were killed in that siege because they listened to what Jesus said. When you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, know that its desolation has come near and flee. God brought a brutal judgment against the Jews. The question is, will it ever end? Will the judgment on ethnic Israel ever end? Because they're still scattered among the nations. You might say, oh, wait, wait. but they have, they're back in, in the land. In the 1940s, they went back in there. But there are still more Jews outside the land than there are in, one. And two, they've not rebuilt the temple. And three, they have never turned to Christ. So no matter what accounting you have of how those prophecies are fulfilled, in other words, whether you agree with my particular doctrine of the end times or not, you can't say that this time of the Gentiles has yet ended. Because the Jews have not yet turned to Christ, regardless of your perspective. I know that there are charlatans out there who want to tell you on the fact that this is the time. Follow me. Look at my chart. Jesus says, don't follow those guys. 
So let's look at the promise of an end to this judgment. The end of the judgment, verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now the Apostle Paul speaks of this judgment as well. It's not just Jesus that speaks about, about this judgment on Israel that happens until the time the Gentiles are fulfilled. The Apostle Paul speaks of it, and he speaks of this judgment not just as a destruction of the city and a scattering among the nations and a destruction of the temple, but he speaks of it as a partial hardening that has come upon their hearts. As a judgment against Israel for her violation of the covenant. However, Paul doesn't say that with joy either. See, when Jesus talks about the judgment that's coming to the city of Jerusalem and the temple, he doesn't do it with anything but tears in his eyes. And the Apostle Paul does the same as he talks about the judgment on ethnic Jews with great grief in his heart. He doesn't say it with joy. He desperately wants his Jewish brothers, according to the flesh, to be saved. In fact, he has great hope they will be saved. He tells us, I'm an ethnic Jew and I'm saved. There are other ethnic Jews, according to the flesh, whom God is saving. And he knows that God will continue to save more ethnic Jews throughout history. So let's look at some of those passages. Look at Romans chapter 10 with me briefly. I want you to see Paul's brokenheartedness about this. As he talks about this judgment that's come upon Jerusalem that ends when the time of the Gentiles or the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, but... Look first at chapter 10 and verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. That's talking about his brothers according to the flesh, his kinsmen, ethnic Jews. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. See, they're not saved, so I'm praying they will be. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. See, they're zealous for God, but they don't know the truth. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, the telos of fulfillment for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, they don't know about Jesus. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness, and they don't know that the righteousness of God came in Christ. And so they're not saved. And that breaks my heart. And I would rather, he says, be accursed myself in Romans chapter 9, so that they would be saved. And I, it's my heart's desire and prayer that they would be saved, that they would come to know the Christ. And he goes on in chapter 11 and asks this incredible question, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And here he's speaking about these ethnic Jews. He says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, am an Israelite a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. See, God hasn't rejected all ethnic Jews because I'm saved. And I'm an ethnic Jew. Further, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. See, Elijah's like, hey, listen, I'm the only, I'm the only believer left. And God responds, but what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, I have a remnant. And he says in verse 5, so too at the present time, right now, Paul's saying, right now as he's writing, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So he is saving ethnic Jews still. In fact, Paul talks about the end of all of this in verse 25. If you go there, chapter 11, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. He's speaking to the Gentiles now. 
Don't be prideful just because more of you are coming to Christ than you see ethnic Jews coming to him. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Some of them are hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, and he goes on. Listen, whatever you think of Romans 11.25, here's the point. Paul believes God will not fail to save even one of his elect. Will not fail to save even one of his elect. Further, Jesus and Paul both tell us that the temporal judgment against the ethnic Jews will come to an end. It will. It'll come to an end at the end of all things. How all the end of all things shakes out is not my purpose this morning. But it will come to an end. Depending on how various scholars take this verse, there will either be a mass conversion of ethnic Jews to Christ, or Paul's speaking about the conversion of Jews throughout history. And I don't have time to unwrap that this morning. The point is, this partial judgment upon Israel will come to an end, and all God's elect will be saved. Here's a question. How does any of this apply to us? See, because if this passage in Luke 21 is largely about Jesus warning the disciples that the destruction of Jerusalem is coming, that he's going to judge the Jews, and if that is fulfilled in AD 70, then how does it apply to us? Well, at least in these ways. First, here's, I'm going to give you three quick applications. They're going to be quick because I've gone long. One, you can be certain of the things you've been taught about Jesus. That's the first application. You can be certain of the things you've been taught about Jesus. One of the interesting questions of this text is this. Why doesn't Luke record the disciples' questions found in the parallel passages in Matthew 24? He doesn't. Why doesn't he record those about the end of the world? They ask questions about that. Why doesn't he? Also, why doesn't Luke make a strong reference to Daniel in Luke 21:20 the way that Jesus and Matthew records it in Matthew 24, 15. Well, the, the way you answer that is you have to answer the question, who is Luke writing to? He's writing to Theophilus. Theophilus is a Gentile. He doesn't associate the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple with a prophecy in Daniel or the end of the world in the same manner the Jews would. He may in some manner, but not to the, the degree that they would. So why does Luke record this at all for Theophilus then? Well, look at Luke chapter 1. Keep your hand in Luke 21. And look at Luke chapter 1 really briefly. Luke records for us in his introduction in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Why, why does Luke 21 help with his Theophilus' certainty? How does it accomplish Luke's purpose for writing to Theophilus and thus to the church? Because Jesus told us 
that these armies would surround Jerusalem and destroy Jerusalem and the temple 40 years before the events. Further, Luke wrote this prior to Theophilus having seen or heard about these events, and I would argue prior to these events even occurring. Which means that as Theophilus is reading this text, and as the early church, who is also being circulated to, is reading this text and heeding these warnings, they have certainty that what they've been taught about Jesus is true because they're seeing it fulfilled. They're seeing his promises come true. That would give you certainty, wouldn't it? So when Theophilus hears that Titus destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, don't you imagine he had a greater certainty in what he believed? There's an apologetic import to this is what I'm saying. You can trust the word of the Lord because his word is always true. Second quick application, you will receive the judgment of God unless you trust in Jesus. That's a less popular one than the first quick application. You will receive the judgment of God unless you trust in Jesus. Think of this. If this is what the judgment, his judgment looks like for one city and people who reject him, what will it look like when he comes in judgment on the whole world? I guess the question is, are you someone who has not trusted in Jesus? See, if you haven't trusted in him, your fate is grim. The judgment of Jesus against the world upon his return will be far more horrific than anything that happened at Jerusalem in 70 AD. The eternal wrath of God against your sin is far more horrific than anything that's ever happened in the history of the world to anyone And you will suffer that eternally for your sin if you don't look to Jesus. So Jesus calls us to flee to Christ. Flee to him now. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be the day of reckoning. I don't know when the great day of the wrath of the Lamb is coming, but when it comes, you don't want to be his enemy. So you look to him and be saved. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He weeps over the lost. He desires for you to be saved. So look to him and believe and be saved. Third application. In destroying the temple, Jesus is making clear that there is only one priest and one sacrifice and one Savior, ultimately. We can't underestimate the importance of this. There are no competitors. Jesus is our only hope. He is the temple God with us. He is himself the substance of the covenant promises God makes to us. He is the final atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our great high priest. There are no others Christian, there is nothing you can do to satisfy God's wrath against your sin. God has saved you in Christ and him alone. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the one by which, under whose name all men must be saved. So lay down your attempts to appease God with your good works. And lay down your attempts to appease him with your sincere faith. And trust in Jesus alone. See, your good works and your sincere faith do not appease the wrath of God. Jesus appeases the wrath of God on your behalf at the cross.
Repent not only of your sins, but repent of your damnable good works, for they often prevent you from seeing the gloriously good news that Jesus has saved you freely, graciously, lovingly, and everlastingly, not because of anything you have done, but because of who he is and what he has done to the praise of his glorious grace. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would trust in your Son and him alone that we would recognize that he is our only hope. He is gloriously good news for us. That we would flee the judgment to come for our sin by running to Christ and trusting in him. If there are any here who don't know you or trust in you, Father, we pray they would this morning. They would look to you in faith, that you would open their eyes and their ears, that you would give them hearts that believe. You would remove the heart of stone they have and give them a heart of flesh. Give them a gift of faith so they would repent and trust in Jesus and be saved. Father, we pray for those of us here who are believers that we would not confuse our growth and holiness, which is a gracious gift of you, with the way we appease your wrath. That we would recognize that your son Jesus appeased it for us. That he is our hope and our righteousness and our sanctification. And that we would walk in holiness out of joy and thanksgiving for what you've done, out of a desire to please you as our Father, not appease you as a wrathful God, out of a desire to give you great honor and glory, as we should, because of what your Son has done for us. We pray this in the name of your Son and for your glory. Amen.